Before we look at this passage, I want to make a few comments about the service and the music today. Uh, I had a conversation with uh, someone at the wedding I was performing yesterday. And uh, she was a a believer, 10 years my senior. I knew that because she mentioned she was 10 years old in 1952. And she was talking about the culture of music and the church that she attends. And the discontent that she had with the, quote, praise service. Her discontent, I thought, was incredibly appropriate. It wasn't about guitars and drums and those things. It wasn't about that. It was really about the content of the music. It was about what was expressed inside the music that was sung. Recently, I saw a headline from Crossway's books, I think it was, that emphasized, how do we go from meology to theology? Do you realize that that's a very modern problem with respect to the Christian faith? The idea that the Christian faith would be all about me is a 20th and 21st century phenomenon. 2,000 years of Christianity, and it was all about God. Ultimately, it was always about God. But we've become that kind of culture where, as Carl Truman says, it's all about expressive individualism. It really is a meology from beginning to end. The secular world only sees human beings in terms of a meology. The verification of that is that formerly the Catholic Health Services in the Western United States, which renamed itself Dignity Health some decade ago or so, their billboard on Stockdale Highway between I-5 and coming in before you reach the Westside Parkway, has this great sign, a great hope, and it says this, humanity is the light that will lead us. Now, I always thought that we would be perfectly fine if humanity really was the light that could lead us. Uh, Do you remember the Peanuts cartoon? I think it was Lucy who said something like, I love humanity. It's just people I can't stand. Early in the 20th century, uh, the London Times was raising the question with its readership, what is the problem with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote back, me, meaning I'm the problem, you're the problem, everybody, the human race is the problem. I say all of that because when you look at the music that Bruce has chosen for today. It's all about God. It's all about God. And that's why we're here. Your greatest need is God. Your greatest need is your Heavenly Father, His Son, and His Holy Spirit. So we come to this passage in the book of Romans and all of the Bible that is preeminently about God. 
But the story about God in Scripture is never about God in isolation from His sovereign, steadfast love toward those that He's saving and redeeming. Because the story of God is the story of His Son. And the story of His Son is that He came into this world as the Lord and Savior and Redeemer of sinful and broken human beings. That's what this passage, this Trinitarian passage, is all about. Reading then Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. We have just sung, Father, of your Holy Spirit, uh, the one who teaches us your word, opens up your word, gives us your word, the very word he inspired, your very word to us. And so we pray for the working of your Holy Spirit to work with us as we listen to what your Paul, your Apostle Paul has written, fully inspired by your Holy Spirit to give to us your very word. And so we pray. Do guide our hearts, thoughts, minds into your truth and into your truth, your truth into our lives in such a way that we can be what the church has been called to be, uh, the pillar and foundation of the truth, bearing witness to Christ, to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with um, reading from one of my favorite hymns. Providentially, Bruce didn't choose this one, but he could have chosen this one for this service and for this passage. It's uh, in the Trinity, if you want to look it up, it's Trinity Hymn of 559. It's Father, I know that all my life. Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. 
I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro, seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. I ask thee for the daily strength to none that ask denied, a mind to blend with outward life while keeping at thy side, content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. In service which thy will appoints, there are no bonds for me. My secret heart is taught the truth that sets thy children free. A life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. I'm going to repeat the first stanza again and then ask you a question. Anne Waring prayed this as she had written this as her prayer and to be sung. Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. The question I ask is, do you understand why a Christian's stance toward life can be and ought to be this perspective? Do you see life this way? The passage we've read, the hymn that we've read, would encourage us as believers to see things this way. The word of the day about how we see things is the word optics, right? Um, uh, optics, commonly, for most of us, is a term that we picked up in physics concerning the physics of light. And now it's been transported into the world of marketing and spend and politics and propaganda and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and essentially today, it's all about the optics of the way things appear to people and making sure that you can change those optics so that the audience that these optics are for has the most favorable reading of what's going on. And so we have terrible situations in the world, whether it's the economy because of COVID and the shutdowns and all of that, or foreign policy with respect to the, the morass of the Middle East and Afghanistan, uh, what's happening among those who are the spin masters and spin meisters, all about optics. We, we want people to see this a particular way so that we can move forward our agenda. That's to take what is actually a fairly significant word, optics, and perhaps use it in a way that's disingenuous or outright deceitful. But I want to say to us that as believers, there needs to be a kind of optics that we have. The Apostle Paul speaks of how we walk by faith and not by sight. Where he means by that, by faith, we actually see things that are unseen, as the writer to the Hebrews says. There's a certain kind of optics that we as Christians ought to always have. It's the kind of optics that Anne Waring speaks of when she says, Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes 
that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. The passage we're looking at today would encourage us to have those kinds of optics. A believer needs to see all of life, every aspect of life, everything in life, all the circumstances of life, all that's happening now, all that's going to happen from the standpoint of not fearing those changes that are sure to come. And why? Because we see things according to the truth of Scripture as we have it presented in this passage. So the main theme of this morning's message, what I want to highlight, can be stated this way. A believer's optics on every aspect of life must be focused with the premise that God has purposed to be for us. Now let's think about that. How should we approach the changes that are sure to come? Because, Father, we know they are sure to come because every aspect of our lives has been portioned out by God. How do we know that we are not to fear any of those changes that are sure to come? How can we have a present mind intent on pleasing God when the optics that we actually can see when we get past the spin masters, when the optics with respect to the world are pretty grim, are pretty sad, are pretty tragic, would lead us to be fairly pessimistic about so many things. How can we, in the midst of all of this, have the kind of perspective that and Warren was encouraging us to have praying to her Heavenly Father. It has this passage undergirding it. It's the idea embedded in Scripture here that what God has purposed, He has purposed for us for our present and eternal good because God is for us. Us. So, in the passage itself, as we break this out, as we move through from verses 26 to verses 32, uh, three particular things woven together. They're all part of something infallible. They're all linked together. So whether we think of them as specific links or one great link that's theologically and logically and causally and ontologically and even epistemologically all wrapped up together. The first would be this. The link between the intercession of the Holy Spirit of God and the Father's providences. That's what we see in verses 26, 27, and 28. And then, linking 28 and 29 and 30, we have the Father's providences embedded within the Father's foreknowledge and predestination of everything with respect to our lives in terms of salvation and sanctification and final glorification. 
those things infallibly link together to lead us to that commitment again and that confidence in our infallible hope. And our infallible hope is the fact that what shall we say to all of this? If God is for us. And that's the climax of this passage. And that's its most essential truth to which we tie into the infallible hope. God has purposed to be for us. Those are the optics that we as believers must possess so that we are able to say, Father, the changes are sure to come. I don't fear them. I pray instead for a heart that's intent upon pleasing you. So we come then to verses 26, 27, and 28 to start with. It's an infallible link that exists between the intercession of the Holy Spirit and the Father's providence. A a providence that ensures our ultimate good. Remember what we looked at last week in terms of the intercession of the Holy Spirit. The key word, intercession, uh, in the Greek refers to the idea of advocacy. It's not just simply speaking on someone's behalf, but it's speaking on someone's behalf as an advocate for that person and for that person's position. And what we looked at last week is that the Holy Spirit knows that we don't know what we ought to pray for. And so the Spirit himself intercedes for us as it says in that passage, with those groanings that are too deep for words, really things that cannot be expressed humanly, that only the Spirit himself can know and can understand. But in all things, the Spirit intercedes for us so that the answer to the Spirit's intercession is, in fact, what the Father does stated for us in verse 28. So I want you to think about verse 28. It's a verse that many of you have memorized. We know that in all things, and sometimes I have to, I can't give you a precise memory verse recitation of that because I have read it in so many different translations. So it's faithful to the Greek. But we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him, those who are the called according to his purposes. I want you to think about the Holy Spirit interceding for you in such a way that God works for your good with respect to all things. Not some things at some moments, but all things at all times. Later in the passage... The apostle is going to talk about all things in connection with our security in the immutable righteousness of Christ. But I'm going to jump ahead and just mention those things because they're clearly in the mind of the apostle Paul as he talks about the all things in verse 28, over which God's providence is reign. He speaks of tribulation. This is 35 to 39. 
distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, life, angels, rulers, meaning demonic rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation. Paul's intention in verses 35 to 39 is to state all those things as those things that are impossible to separate us from the love of God. But clearly, the fact that there are that we cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ is related to what Paul is stating earlier. The reason why nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ is because God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purposes. Not just some things here and there. But all things, at all times, in all places, against all enemies, God is at work for our good. In answer to the Holy Spirit's constant, unrelenting, unceasing, interminable intercession for us. Say again, the word optics used politically, sometimes in churches, in a bad way, to try to make a bad story look good. What Paul says here is not spin. It's the truth. The reason why Ann Waring could pray, Father... I know that all my life is portioned out for me is because her optics were biblical. She saw and believed in the providence of the Father to govern her life in every way so that she did not fear those changes that were sure to come. Consider then the second link, the second infallible link. And this is the link that connects God's present providences and his eternal predestinating purposes, which include his saving and sanctifying purposes within our lives. Let me read verses 28, 29, and 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 28 is all about God's present providences as well as his future providences. 
But we come to verse 29. And the connection between verse 28 and 29 is the word in English, for. But if you look at the Greek, you understand that the, our understanding of the word for needs to be connected to the concept of because. It's a causal connection. Uh, the reason why verse 28 is true is because verse 29 is true. That which has the theological and logical and causal priority is verse 29. And verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now that's speaking of those who love God, those who are called according to his purposes. So all of these providences over our lives, all particular things that work together for our ultimate good, they do so because they are embedded in God's predestinating purposes of all those that he has foreknown that they might be conformed to the image of Christ, his Son. And so that Jesus himself would be able to see within his family all brothers who deeply and perfectly resemble him. God's providences are embedded in God's deepest purposes for us and for His Son. Purposes that go back to the very, very beginning, eternity past. Because the concept of predestination is always concerned with all that God did before the foundations of the world. But what God chose to do and planned to do and predestined to do before the foundations of the world works itself out in time, in history, in terms of our own personal salvation. And the good that God intends for each of us who know the living God is conformity to the likeness of His Son. That likeness of Jesus and His perfect humanity. Our ultimate good is to become increasingly what God designed human beings to be like in the very beginning. Those who would bear his image and reflect the glory of his own nature in terms of their own humanity. Now we can talk about this in terms of character perfection, moral perfection, spiritual perfection, all of those kinds of things. But I want us to know and to believe and to truly grasp our greatest good is to be like Jesus. Measure everything in life in terms of our worldly understandings of what makes us happy, what makes us successful, what grants us prosperity. We should measure everything. If there's any meology, it ought to be Christology. If I think about what is to my best and ultimate good, I have to look outside of myself and look to Jesus. I have to see in Him God's greatest good for me. 
to be like him. There's a phrase I hate. Be the best you you can be. What a failed understanding of life. The best you you can be is lost. Broken. Doomed. And damned. Your only hope is to lose yourself and find Christ and become all that you could be in Him. Because that's the Father's ultimate good for you and that's the Father's plan that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus, not the image of the Adam that lost everything for all humanity. But of course, if humanity is the light that's going to light the way, then yes, be the best you you can be and be lost with the rest of the world. God's highest good for us is Christ. And he's given us, in verse 30, such an infallible perspective in terms of an infallible chain that this will be so. In verse 29, he says, For all those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And it continues. In the Greek, there is no thought of breaking this chain at all. It's one continuous theological and logical and causal form of thinking. For those whom he predestined, those he also called. And those he called, those he also justified. And those he justified, those he also glorified. Four aspects. Theologically, logically, savingly connected. To be predestined. As I said before, the concept there takes us back from before the foundations of the world. It's been eternally God's purpose to do this. To be conformed to the likeness of His Son. Calling refers to what God began to do in your life and to do it effectually so that when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God would call you to life into union with the Lord Jesus. The working of His Holy Spirit to transform you from someone destined to hell to someone destined to glory. Those whom He called, He justified. The very aspect of salvation where God justifies, declares righteous, not on the basis of any works which you have ever done, but on the basis of Christ and because you have placed your faith in Jesus. And glorification. Scripture always presents the concept of sharing in the glory of Christ, glorification, as the final aspect, of the glorious and eternal aspect of our salvation. 
so that we would be with Jesus, looking like Jesus, sharing in an inheritance of his glory. And many have called this the golden chain of redemption. Because that which God began in the alpha of his intentions, he takes to the omega of his completion. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The Spirit prays for us. And that's infallibly linked to the providences of God. God's providence reigns over your life from beginning to end because those providences are embedded in what God began to do before the foundations of the world with you in mind that you would be like his son. And then we go, what is the guarantee of all of this? The last part of this section that we're looking at, verses 30 to 32, presents to us and sums, us, sums up for us a guarantee, an infallible hope all of us possess because of the remarkable truth that God is for us. That's the conclusion that Paul draws at this point. It's that which we must likewise believe. In verse 31, Paul asks this question. What then shall we say to these things? The fact that we have been predestined and called and called and justified and justified and glorified the fact that God is doing all of this for our ultimate good so that we would look like his son. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? What is our response? What does this do for us? What are the optics at this point? Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is one of the most remarkable truth claims of all of Scripture because in an if-then statement like this, you take the first conditional, if, and it's not a conditional as maybe, maybe not. It's a conditional stated as a fact. If God is for us, and he most certainly is, what then, who then, can be against us? The Holy Spirit is interceding for you in a manner that's unending. The Father's providential and predestinating purposes are all directed toward you becoming conformed to the image of his son. What can actually oppose us? What can defeat us? What in anything, in any way can destroy us? 
If God is on our side, which is the meaning of what, if God is for us, what can ever be on the other side that could ever have any kind of ultimate power to control us, constrain us, or to rule over us? And the conclusion is, no one and nothing. And then to add to the strength of Paul's argument, he declares this in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has done the greatest thing for you, how will God also not do every other lesser thing that's good for you as well? There is no greater argument that the Father could ever, ever present than delivering up His own Son for us all. Making Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The ultimate proof that God is for us. That God has purposed to be for us in all dimensions of life. That is why, with Anne Waring, we ought to be able to say, Father, I know that all my life, is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. Father, if, if you were for me, what can be against me? Father, if you gave your own Son for me, how will you not also graciously give me all things? Father, these are your promises to me. And in response, Father, I ask Thee for a present mind intent on pleasing Thee. Yesterday when I was talking to this dear godly saint and she was expressing all of the woes of the world from elections that didn't go right to fiascos and the Middle East, mismanagement of COVID, everything. And she brought up the word as I said, rapture, rapture, rapture. My response was, you know, to the, to the small group of people that I have opportunity to minister to, I said, I talk about perseverance in the midst of all of these things. Because God has promised to be for us. Our infallible hope. God has purposed to be for us.
we don't have to pray for the great escape. We place our hope, yes, in the second coming of Christ. But our daily hope is that we do not fear the changes that are sure to come because God has portioned all of our life out for us with the intention of using everything to conform us to the image of His Son, our highest good. And therefore, we say, Father, I ask Thee for a present mind intent on pleasing Thee. Amen. Almighty God, we thank You for Your Word. The greatness of it, the depth of it, the power of it, the significance of it, the truth of it. It opens up to us who You are for us and grants us a hope infallible because of all that You have done for us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so we pray. Grant us then childlike faith where we would be treated as a child and guided where we should go. In Jesus' name, amen.